trials, sidebars, hearings, settlement conferences, consultations. Lawyers talk a lot. It's what they do for a living. And if you get into a conversation with one, they tend to have some pretty good tales to tell. This is Law Stories, where we bring you the best attorney anecdotes. And here's your host, the president and CEO of M2M Legal, James Skiles. Welcome to Law Stories. This week's guest is Kevin Normile, a former active duty officer in the United States Air Force Judge Advocate General's Corps. He is here to talk to us about life as a military lawyer. Kevin, thank you for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me, James. Really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. First off, uh, tell us a little about yourself and uh, your former and current areas of practice. Well, I uh, joined the Air Force and went active duty in 2009. I did uh, just under six years of active duty service uh, with the Air Force at places ranging from uh, Whiteman Air Force Base, uh, kind of in the middle of Missouri, to um, doing work in the National Capital Region and a deployment to Afghanistan. I uh, left active duty service in December of 2015 and have since worked as a civil servant, both with the Air Force previously and now with the Army. Um, And I've been in the Air Force Reserve. And I'm also an adjunct faculty member at Northwest Florida State College, where I teach their acquisitions law seminar. Wow, they keep yourself pretty busy there. Yeah, I I like to uh, have the three-job approach to life. But, you know, it's really nice professionally when everything you do complements all of your other professional endeavors. Being a better reservist makes me better at my civil service job. And actually having to teach the subject matter to my um, senior students in the seminar helps me explain it better to my clients at work. So, um, you know, hopefully everything is on an upward trajectory. So just between you and me and the uh, the hundreds of listeners that we have out there, uh, when you're uh, doing your civilian job with the Army, do you like to give them a little bit of rub in the, the, the ribs about uh, how they have it versus how you guys have it in the Air Force? Well, you know, you have some of those uh, funny jokes where the Army guys um, you know, I think they're commiserating with you talking about uh, having to live in tents on all these deployments. And then they're uh, not always happy when you tell them that I've spent, I think, one night in a tent in my entire time in the Air Force um, during training. But, you know, I've been blessed to at least be in a uh, shipping container turned into housing on other nights. But certainly, uh, you know, the quality of life in the Air Force, um, in, in many cases, for, for some airmen is better. But, you know, I mean, all joking aside, we have a a number of airmen that, uh, you know, really live out in the most arduous conditions. Uh, I've just been very blessed not um, sharing in that myself. Uh, A shipping container is not exactly the the Marriott now, is it? No, no. Um, But, you know, I'd I'd still like to think with the solid wall that at least one step above the tent. Yeah, true that. Okay, so here at Law Stories, we're all about sharing stories about the legal profession. Tell us your best and most entertaining story about your life as an attorney in the Air Force Judge Advocate General Corps. Well, I I was thinking about some of the more interesting things, um, but I think what your listeners might be the most interested in is um, just the life of an attorney deployed in Afghanistan. Ooh. you know, well, hence you get to the living, spending many nights in a, a shipping container that isn't very well insulated, um, you know, when you're in transit from place to place. And just the amount of living and working in shipping containers that, that some people do. We, um, we had a legal office um, that I was deployed with 
So we had five attorneys and one paralegal in one room. And the room was actually built out of shipping containers in a building built out of shipping containers. So just so you can have a sense of how this works, you put the shipping containers in a row. And when you want to make it a bigger room, you remove the walls between two of the containers. Now, I think you can only safely do this with up to two containers while keeping the structural integrity of everything else. You put a hallway between two rows of containers. So, you know, you're effectively walking down a hallway with doors on each side going into all of the offices. And those are the various, and you can do that in all the, you know, the different ways that you might remove walls from a shipping container or from two shipping containers for a few different configurations. And then you can stack a second level of shipping containers above that. And so with an exterior staircase, you now have a two-story shipping container building in bright primary colors. So basically a double wide. Yeah, kind of like that. <laughs> the military's, yeah, military's <laughs> version of, uh, of uh, uh, composite housing, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, effectively, effectively. I mean, it's, it's a very efficient way to put things together. You can move your buildings. It's easy to reassemble them. Um, certainly, I, I have to assume that it's a very cost-effective way of um, doing business. But, uh, you know, if you're like me, I, my leg kind of shakes as, a, you know, kind of an unconscious fidget movement while I work. And uh, when the floor vibrates and it causes a vibration that everyone in your workspace feels, that is not really appreciated. So no, I'm just, sure it isn't. <clears throat> a few of the, um, you know, interesting occupational occurrences that come up when you have six people in a, a you know, the two shipping container room. Uh, but I was thinking about, well, you're there in Afghanistan and, and some of the interesting things um, that we would be facing. And, you know, sometimes that I think a lot of Americans and even attorneys included, we have a very cultural specific lens of viewing problems. We assume that a lot of problem solving, a lot of trade, and a lot of negotiation works on an American model. And and I think especially for those, you know, of your listeners who are looking at any type of international practice, um, or even working in the US, but where you have clients who are not as familiar with the, the U.S. culture, it's very important to keep this in practice. So I want you to imagine um, you know, a scenario that, that's somewhat like an actual one that I faced. Mm -hmm. So imagine, James, that you're an attorney here in the U.S. and you get a call from a client. A terrible accident has occurred on their property. I don't know, say a, a crane drops a load um, of steel pipes on a Chevy 3500 work truck and completely destroys it. No possibility of repair. There's you're only salvaging it for metal. Right. And your client uh, doesn't have insurance for this situation. Yeah. But the client either because they think there's liability or just to keep good faith with the community and keep their reputation intact, they want to pay for this Chevy 3500 work truck. Well, James, how would you get a price for what the truck was worth? Obviously, you go to Blue Book, look, look up the year, and it'll get you the, uh, the the value of the of the truck. Yeah, because you know we can just go online, pull up the Kelly Blue Book, put in the mileage, and boom, you hit you hit the nail on the head. We get an immediate price on that, or at least we have a very tight spread ballpark. Now, 
in Afghanistan, whenever you go to buy something, uh, there is never a place that I saw uh, that had a posted price, or at least I, I can't remember one for anything. If you're going <laughs> to buy a rug, you would go and talk to the merchant. They would pull out the rugs, and then you'll see who will make the first offer because that sets essentially the floor or the starting place for negotiations. Well, so it's, it's very much a bargaining culture. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so in, uh, you know, in Afghanistan, when we had people trying to price property, we would have people doing web searches to see what property would be priced at because they're used to doing it in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And the closest you could get sometimes were vehicles in Pacific Island or Asian countries like you know, Japan or the Philippines. So if a work truck was destroyed in Afghanistan and you're trying to pull up a fair price and you're just doing this online, it's very hard to get an accurate reading on what the local price would be when you're pulling the price for the same work truck in Japan. Yeah, because you're, you're talking about completely different economies there. Oh, absolutely. And half the work trucks they have or a, a substantial number are from um, Toyota. And so a lot of them are either manufactured in Japan or from one of its the nearby countries. But Toyotas tend to be fairly popular. Well, um, Toyotas are popular everywhere. I mean, I've <laughs> the most common uh, the most common uh, military vehicle or quasi in this case paramilitary vehicle that you would see on TV would be a Toyota uh, pickup truck with a with a fifty cal on the back. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of what you would see. But even over there, um, although in, in Kabul, I think that the car of choice, at least for the daily commuters, was a Corolla. Really? Uh, yeah, we, uh, one of the uh, Afghan men that I uh, spent the most time with, he had a Corolla. And so I was asking him uh, about it at some point, uh, because I was trying to understand a situation of how to replace some trucks in a case. And he told me that he bought a four, four-year-old Corolla. And, and so I asked him, well, what kind of price did, did you have to pay for a four-year-old Corolla? Now, I, I had naively assumed that because Afghanistan is one of the least affluent countries on earth, that the price of everything is low. I, I knew that the price of labor was low. The price of rugs or tailored suits or anything else that they make by hand was really low. So I was shocked when my friend told me that the price he paid on his four-year Corolla is basically the price that I would pay for a brand new Corolla in the States. Uh. And, and I couldn't figure this out. So he tells me the reason that is that the price of those goods are more expensive, rather, is because none of them are manufactured in Afghanistan. And for the, and it's difficult for them to have um, kind of the, the solid supply chains where they're just bringing cars. It isn't like at the U.S. that even if you had a dealership that was only, say, selling, um, I, I think most of the Priuses are manufactured in Japan. So say right. it's selling Priuses, well, they're coming up with how many they want to sell. They're shipping them over here in advance. And so you have a, a very organized logistical system. But in Afghanistan, typically they're importing used cars from other places rather than new. And so the prices were sky high. And so we were... So to circle back the question about how do we compensate someone for a truck or a vehicle that's destroyed? So ultimately, we had to uh, ask our friend to either call when calling in a barter economy is just about the least effective way to get information because no one wants to give their floor price away randomly over the phone. Right. Or, 
had he'd have to then go physically and kind of get a sense um, from the type of floor prices that that the dealer or the the first offers that dealers would make for what the price was. And so it turns out that even though the price um, the price for the truck that the person had requested that we pay was about was three times higher than the Japanese market price for the same old work truck. It was actually a uh, very fair price that we that he had requested, and so we were ultimately able to pay it in that case. It's unbelievable. It's, yeah, and it's you know what it it really taught me is that I have to make to check myself to make sure that I'm not just thinking like an American and automatically going back to the same type of problem solving that would be second nature to us in the U.S. Because a lot of other places in the world don't work like that. Hmm. That's, I mean, that's that's an interesting scenario. Now, you know, going back to to the life of of an attorney uh, in Afghanistan, well, even in the JAG Corps, uh, you know, what what when you weren't working on on pricing out uh, vehicles that were lost uh, or were damaged by U.S. personnel. Uh, what was what was would be your typical day uh, in in Afghanistan as an attorney? Well, you know there are a few things, and I, I probably should have brought this up at the beginning. But of course, um, when I'm talking about this, my opinions are solely my personal opinions. They do not represent the Department of Defense, the Army, the Air Force, or any Department of Defense or U.S. government instrumentality. Having said that, what is what does our day to day look like when we were deployed there? We would have 12-hour days um, for five days a week. And then we would get two days where they would give us half days off. So you'd only be working six hours on those days. Um, now, you'd always have time for meals, and they would give you enough time so that you were never rushed for a meal. And they would want um, you to have some type of physical fitness activity each day. So if you're kind of tracking what that would look like from morning to dusk, get up shower i was at least blessed to be in a, a hard building uh, for where i spent most of my time there with with indoor plumbing and running water so i could get a hot shower pretty much every day and um walk over to our chow hall get breakfast um most of the food we had was shipped in um from international sources so and i, I think it was probably shipped in uh you know either frozen or in like a dry powdered form so, you know, you'd get um, some, uh, you know, uh, reconstituted eggs or some sausage or, or bacon. Um, it was interesting that they had pork products. Uh, yeah, in a Muslim country, that is interesting. Uh, because they, they had no pork products in uh, Qatar, but they would actually have a little red sticker with a, a pink pig on it so that it would be very clear so that other, um, you know, like Muslim allies from places like uh, Turkey or, or even Muslim, um, or if we had Orthodox Jewish U.S. service members, that they they would know that it's clearly marked with pork. So we get that, um, you know, eat, eat in a nice, uh, I mean, maybe not a nice building, but, you know. Relatively. Um, for a deployed location, nice. It's not a tent um, building. And then uh, we go to our, uh, you know, bright little primary colored two-story build out of shipping container building. You'd uh, then, you know, of course, go into the small office where, where the six of you were there. 
and then uh, you'd work through it. And uh, I picked my two half days, um, Saturday morning and Sunday morning. So I'd have the mornings off. So I would just have to report, um, I, I think at 1, uh, 1 p.m., I would have to report on those days. So I could do masks on Sunday. And then um, I would lift uh, weights with one of my friends there on Saturday morning. And, um, you know, then you'd read, book, read books or you could go to a, a bazaar there and um, engage in some bartering if you wanted to. They had a little uh, green bean coffee shop uh, if you wanted to pay for coffee. But since your coffee was free in the dining facility, uh, I only occasionally would pay for coffee in the coffee shop. Now, Kevin, were you were you at an FOB at that point? No, um, I, I was at a facility in um, around Kabul. Experience is very different from other people's. My, uh, for instance, my younger brother, um, he's an Ohio Army Guardsman in the infantry, or was when when he deployed to Afghanistan, and so he was out. Um, I think very often living in tents. Uh, eating uh, a lot of local food, you know, they would have uh, roast skewers of goat occasionally and things <laughs> like that, where, you know, my food was, you know, I would say uh, mid-range institutional food. Um, yeah, a lot of, so, lot of powdered eggs, a lot of, uh, a lot of chip beef on toast, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I, and occasionally better than that, uh, we had steak and shrimp every Friday night. Uh, the, the only downside is the steak was always well done for... Uh, for safety reasons, but hey, it, it's still steak and shrimp, and uh, you know, occasionally you get some hamburgers or or um, ribs or or other things. So it wasn't. I, I was actually pleasantly surprised with the food. It, where I was, it wasn't a hardship. But you know, you have a, a lot of our service members who are eating those little package uh, MREs or for your audience meals ready to eat. They come in a little brown um, sealed plastic pouch with their own heat element. And it's kind of a, you know, complete meal in one. And so, uh, you know, I just always thought I was blessed in Afghanistan uh, to almost always have a hot meal. When uh, you said that there, you went to a bazaar, was this a bazaar that was actually on on location or was it in, in Kabul proper? No, so it was uh, on location. So you'd have um, people coming on to uh, sell their wares. Um, they had a uh, an electronics, well, they they would have thought of it as kind of like an electronics shop with uh, an interesting selection of watches. They had batteries, DVDs. Um, I, I myself was always be concerned about a, a, a DVD um, that, that you would get there, uh, both because there's a high probability that it's bootleg, but also you have no idea, um, you know, if you're going to get a virus or something on it. So I, I uh, put one DVD um, into my computer and got a virus warning. And oh, jeez. So, and th this is not the government computer, just so your audience knows. It, I brought my own laptop, got a virus warning, and I, I said I was done with DVD watching there. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so uh, so I'm I, going to assume that in this scenario that uh, you pretty much did not leave the base unless you're going to the airport, correct? Uh, you know, I, I would leave occasionally to do some other things uh, in the cluster, but you know, I, I certainly was not in the um, transfer troops who would spend most of their time uh, outside the wire. Is there anything that you would have done in your service in Afghanistan, your 
day-to-day life as a, as, as a military attorney that could even be somewhat comparable to what an attorney does in the U.S. in their private practice? Well, I mean, a lot of the things are similar. You have clients who have needs that have to be met. You have to communicate very clearly with your clients because very often they're geographically dispersed. Um, and, and I think, James, you might even have, uh, you know, face some of those challenges in your practice because, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a number of clients will uh, contact you. Uh, and you don't even meet them face to face. No, not in, in the nature of my practice. Is it's a lot of it is is internet based. So yeah, uh, there is <laughs> sometimes there can be very little face to face contact with my clients. So I have a couple of long term clients that I meet with maybe once or twice a year, and those are corporate clients. But most of the communications are done vis a vis internet. So <clears throat> and so I think just keeping up that high degree of communication is very important um, mm-hmm. for us because you have a constant turnover of personnel with people deploying in and deploying out. You, you have to focus a lot to maintain that kind of continuity, both within your organization and then talking to those points of contact because you're trusting people for information and, and to accomplish goals that you may not have ever met. Um, one, of, one of our attorneys, I, I never met him in person until several years later stateside because he was out um, with a, a Marine unit at a geographically dispersed camp. And so although I would talk to him and he would, when he would have BTC capabilities, he would call into the meetings. Um, he, he was part of our unit, but I, you know, I never met him. So you have to spend a lot more time investing in relationships and overcoming some of those digital distance barriers. I, I think much like you or, uh, you know, attorneys who have a similar practice to you would have. Yeah. Uh, usually at this point in the podcast, we have our guests give us basic tips for people dealing with a particular issue. In this case, I don't think there's uh, anything that would be applicable to anything in your law story because it's something that's so so fascinating and, and so out of the ordinary of practice in the United States. Uh, so why don't you give us a uh, common legal issue that you would see amongst servicemen and women that would necessitate them uh, needing services from their unit's legal officer? So the one thing that I would like to hammer in to not just every military member, but every member of the general public, you need to take some time and do very, at least very basic estate planning. Um, You know, and it's funny that you would ask me these questions, James, since often when I have uh, an interesting estate planning question or how to strategize it, I actually, you know, come to you and discuss it with you. Right. But, um, but in general, even the airman who has a, a bank account, a car with a huge loan on it, and a video game console and a nice television, and that's pretty much the totality of their possession, at least they can come in, spend an hour, and get a basic will from us. And as soon as they start to have children and accumulate real assets, you need to spend some time on the estate planning and and probably look towards um, especially once you're passing the million dollar mark, look at what trust options that you might have out there. Um, and in many states, uh, a trust makes a lot of sense even below the one million dollar mm-hmm. threshold. Although for us, of course, because we have, um, airmen or service members from all 50 states plus all the U.S. territories, I, I don't know how, what is that? 58 different legal systems, however many you have each each state and territory with its own um, legal regime for how you're going to handle 
estates when someone passes away. But if you get that basic will, we know who your executor or personal representative is going to be. It says who your items go to. And really, that's the best way that you can sometimes protect your family, but at least you can make their life a lot easier if something unfortunate would happen to you. So, oh, you know, Absolutely. What about uh, issues where a, an airman or a soldier, a sailor, Marine would be facing like non-judicial punishment or even an Article 19? So if you're looking at, um, you know, getting non-judicial punishment or, uh, you know, in the Air Force, Article 15 or discharge or demotion or, or any of these things, um, or even potentially a court-martial, all of the military services actually have free defense counsel um, set up that any any um, of the service members who are facing any type of adverse action can go to. So it isn't like in the civilian world where a lot of times people would uh, put in a guilty plea or, or some type of no contest plea because the penalty is so much less than what it would cost for them to get an attorney. In the military system, we actually give all of our service members free legal services and at least in the Air Force, those are the, the attorneys that the Air Force handpicks because of their litigation skill to mm. make defense counsel. So you're making your best young JAGs your defense counsel and then giving them the resources to represent their clients for free. And it really ensures, um, yeah, at least in my personal opinion, that people have the level of representation that would prevent the system from treating them unfairly or kind of bulldozing over them. That's definitely good for for the, the men and women who work so hard uh, defending our country. So, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been Law Stories brought to you by M2M Legal. Do you have any uh, final thoughts? Well, I'm just so happy, uh, you know, that you would invite me onto this. Um, and I'm uh, down here in the Panama City or Tyndall Air Force Base area. And I would just ask that you and uh, everyone listening, uh, keep everyone down here in your thoughts and prayers and the, the slow task of doing post-hurricane rebuilding grand zone. Yeah, that, that's got to be incredibly terrible. We've all seen all the pictures. Is there anything that you know of uh, that our listeners could do to help out in that situation? Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are some legitimate charities, um, you know, like uh, Knights of Columbus Charities, or the the Red Cross, or, or some of the uh, or the Samaritans Purse, or some other very reputable charities um, that people would be able to contribute if they're trying to help out, and um, I, I'm sure that would be appreciated. There is um, there are a lot of people in need, and in some of the communities here, a fairly high degree of poverty, and so they don't always have necessarily all of the resources um, to simply relocate from the area or easily be able to um, bounce back. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. This has been Law Stories, brought to you by M2M Legal. Please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you go for your listening pleasure. And if you'd like, please visit us at m2mlegal.com and partake in our various legal services. I'm James Skiles, President and CEO of M2M Legal, and thank you very much for listening. 
Lost Stories with James Skiles is a production of 1A Cast Media in association with M2M Legal. All statements made by hosts and guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the producers or distributors of this program. Although the hosts and guests of this program are attorneys, no statements should be construed as legal advice. If you require legal assistance, contact an attorney licensed to practice in your area.